Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On this month's Dry Cleaner Cast, we get nautical, discussing submarines with author Ian Ballantyne. On this episode, we talk about the role of submarines in espionage and defense. We also dive into the hotly debated topic of Trident, the Royal Navy's nuclear deterrent. Since this episode was recorded, the United Nations has just launched a treaty calling for the banning of nuclear weapons, and the current US President, Donald Trump, gave a fiery speech addressing the UN in which he claimed that US forces may have to totally destroy North Korea. North Korea responded to Trump's speech saying that he was like a dog barking. Needless to say, as of this time, tensions continue between the United States and North Korea over North Korea's nuclear weapons program. All of that aside, I hope you're ready to join me on another episode of the Dry Cleaner Cast. Let's dive in. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Ian, thank you for joining us on The Dry Cleaner Cast. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Ian, please can you tell us a bit about yourself? Well, I have a background in uh, newspaper journalism. I started out in uh, what you might call the computer industry, working for IBM as a gopher, and then I did a bit of movie reviewing and general reporting as a freelance, and I went to journalism college and you know, ended up doing defence reporting as uh, in 1990 when Saddam invaded Kuwait, and there was an opening for a Navy reporter and defence reporter on the Evening Herald in Plymouth, so I took that and I did the Gulf War, and then I did uh, the Royal Navy in the Adriatic, and I went to Russia a few times with the Navy and to Murmansk and all sorts of exotic places. And then uh, after that, uh, I worked in London as a defence and diplomatic correspondent for a a very short time, one of the shortest careers in Fleet Street, and then uh, that was <laughs> that was down to not me, but the uh, the agency closed, so we were all made redundant. So uh, after that, I thought I don't want to work for somebody else. I've had enough of that. So uh, we set up a, a magazine with what was then HBC Publishing called Warships International Fleet Review. That was in 1998, and that's now a monthly naval news magazine looking at the geopolitical side and uh, events in in the naval sphere and uh, I also write books I've written some naval history books from uh, HMS Victory right down through World War II to the current topic that I'm uh, I'm undertaking which is really submarine warfare and I've, I've actually finished one book Hunter Killers and that's out there and I'm just um, completing another which is called The Deadly Trade. When's The Deadly Trade out? Uh, that'll be out next March and that's uh, a big epic telling of uh, history of submarines, submarine warfare and the uh, inspiring, mad, uh, slightly nutty people that were the early inventors and then down through World War One and into the uh, the actual grim business of uh, submarines sinking ships to the Cold War. As we'll be discussing submarines, it'd be good to start with a brief history of how they came to be. Ian, could you just give us a brief history of the origins of submarines and how they developed over the years? The thing that most people probably think about submarines is that they're a comparatively new invention. But in fact, submersibles, uh, i.e. craft that can dive and stay under for a short period, 
uh, have been around for a long, long time. And in fact, attempts to make submersibles or submarines, if you want to call them that generally, go back centuries, right the way back to um, the 16th century, the 15th century in practical terms. And people have been dreaming about them since the time uh, of the ancients. So uh, it goes back a, ha- a long, long way. I think Jules Verne was a fan. Yeah, Jules Verne came up with 20,000 Leagues uh, Beneath the Sea at a time when, in fact, the first uh, war vessels that were submersible had shown that they could actually uh, sink a ship. That was during the American Civil War. So a lot of the stuff he put in his very groundbreaking book uh, was around at the time. But the thing he did was he he took it one step further by imagining a, a submarine that didn't have to breathe in air or expel fumes. And uh, but submarines themselves uh, were at the time uh, man-powered, and uh, he came up with something else. So there's, there's submarines and their inventors have been around for ages, and I think it was only in 1901 with a guy called John Philip Holland that the perfect balance between propulsion, the ability to breathe uh, air so you could keep the crew alive, and also expel fumes by you know surfacing. Uh, the combination of uh, diesel-electric propulsion with a working armament came along, and that was the Holland-class boat in 1901. So that was the first submarine that we'd recognise as a submarine. Those boats developed from World War I and II, didn't they? Especially post-World War II. Am I right that submarines in use today, that their design harks back to the developments from World War II? What happened uh, during World War I and World War II was that obviously during the periods of... Um, conflict there were all sorts of attempts to uh, cut the umbilical cord between the submarine and the surface made and in the uh, in the dutch navy and the royal navy there had been uh, scrutiny between the wars of a thing called the snork uh, snorkel sorry or the snort mast which would enable a diesel electric submarine to breathe in air and expel fumes and so stay invisible but it was the germans in world war ii who were desperate to escape the attentions of um, depth-charging corvettes and destroyers and also aircraft that first put to use the uh, snorkel and then they decided they would develop more advanced submarines and it was those submarines, the Type 21 U-boat at the end of the war, that were seized quite eagerly by all sides, the Russians, the Americans, the French and uh, the Brits and they, they were the submarines, the Type 21s, that were used basically as the pattern for the early Cold War submarines. Am I right in thinking that the USS Nautilus was the world's first nuclear-powered submarine? Yeah, she was the first uh, proper nuclear-powered submarine, yeah, Um, and that was in the early 1950s, and it was in August 1958 that she made the first submerged uh, transit under the pole and demonstrated that you really could send a boat to sea and not have to worry about um, being seen at all, and that nothing uh, was inaccessible anymore because in the early part of the Cold War, uh, diesel electric submarines, particularly the British, uh, had to become expert at going under the ice. And it was a very, very tricky thing for a submarine that needed to surface to take in air and expel fumes. But the Nautilus didn't need to do that, plus had vast amounts of uh, power due to a nuclear reactor to power uh, sensors and also weaponry and everything else on board and keep the crew alive as well. And the HMS Dreadnought came from that. Lord Mountbatten was very interested in the development of nuclear submarines. The British realised they they had to get into the game because the Russians uh, came along with uh, the November class after the Nautilus. And so Britain could never produce the numbers of submarines that either the Russians or the Americans produced because we just didn't have the economy. We didn't have the industrial uh, resources, really. So the British decided to produce a few and make them very good. So the first... 
nuclear powered submarine for the Royal Navy was, uh, um, I nearly said Nautilus, it was Dreadnought. Nautilus was the American one. Yeah. And uh, there was a problem with perfecting the reactor technology. So, so uh, uh, Admiral Lord uh, Mountbatten did a, a deal with um, uh, Hyman Rickover, the head of the US nuclear powered submarine program, and they, they gave us uh, the technology to sort out the reactor. And so it was an American uh, aft end, uh, back end, and it was a Brit- totally British front end. So there was a kind of a they, they put up a sign uh, where the big uh, ra- radia- radiation proof uh, compartment door is, uh, which said, This is Checkpoint Charlie. And when you go through here, you're going into an area that's American technology. And so the, the, the first British fleet submarine, as they were called, uh, was Dreadnought, and she was put together with the help of the Americans because they were vital in technological terms. Many people are concerned by the idea of submarines being nuclear-powered, as well as some being nuclear-armed. We'll discuss nuclear weapons in a bit. What methods are there for powering submarines today, and what are their advantages over each other? You have diesel-electric submarine uh, uses a battery when it's submerged and has a diesel engine to charge the battery whilst running on the surface. And then when they dive, they switch to, to the battery, and that's very silent. There's not many uh, moving parts to that. And uh, that makes a diesel electric submarine very, very quiet. And its Achilles heel is, of course, that it has to surface to uh, do the usual venting of fumes and taking in air. Well, you now have another type called the air independent propulsion submarine, which is quiet. It's a diesel electric submarine, but uses a closed cycle, uh, which enables it to keep um, power going without needing air. And those are very quiet. Uh, and again, they're even more effective than electric submarines but they have a small crew probably a shorter endurance and it can't carry the same uh, depth of weaponry or sensors as nuclear powered submarines which are the ones the big beasts with uh, all the power they need for all the weapons they need and you know for a crew of 100 120 people and uh, so they can stay dived and hidden for you know months at a time and that's the point of nuclear power but they are noisy because they they rely on uh, turbines and that does make them easier to detect uh, on sonar, but they're very fast, very powerful, and you'd be lucky uh, uh, for any diesel electric submarine or AIP boat to stand a chance against a nuclear-powered hunter-killer. So, in fact, you wouldn't stand a chance. So there are, there are advantages and disadvantages. So the main advantage for nuclear, it's quieter and more energy efficient, am I right? Uh, well, it's not quieter in terms of the, de- the, um, the turbines that it needs, because one turbine for generating electricity and the other one uh, turns the propeller at the back and that you know that's noisy machinery very complex but uh, they are if you want to be in the top league you have to have a nuclear powered submarine and uh, that's why they are still uh, being pursued by a number of nations Uh, america probably the top operator of nuclear powered submarines followed by uh, i mean russia is not what it used to be but it's, it's reviving itself and then britain and you've got the French, and, you've, and, and India's entering the nuclear-powered submarine game, and so is Brazil. So uh, if I've forgotten any there, China, of course, uh, I apologise. Sound plays an important role in submarine detection. We've seen those movies in which suddenly the crew stops dead and looks towards the threat. Sweat drips off their faces as they wait for the threat above to pass. Then some member of the crew drops a ratchet and all hell breaks loose. Why is sound so important in submarine detection? The sound travels for hundreds of miles under the sea. I mean, it's the, the, the seas under the sea uh, is, is not a quiet place to be. It's a noisy place to be. There's fish, there's uh, uh, 
the noise of propellers, there's ice crunching together, there's all sorts down there. So uh, what, what they're doing on sonar is they're trying to hear something that is distinctively uh, mechanical or human generated and a particular kind of sound that they can identify. And uh, with uh, ASDIC, as the British called it in World War II, or sonar, uh, sound navigation and ranging, which is what it's known as, uh, they can hear you. And sound is the thing that gives a submarine away, most of all, because it will travel for miles and it can be... With, with the right, with the right uh, sonar operator, they can they have a sixth sense in, in a surface ship, let's say during World War II, there were the sonar operator, the most prized person was somebody who developed that skill of knowing exactly what a submarine was. And there were people like that, particularly in the American and, and British escorts, because that's uh, the, the Americans and British operated the most, and I'm sure in the Japanese as well, um, that could tell what kind of submarine it was, or sorry, whether or not it was a submarine. And those were the guys you wanted. And they, they were highly prized in the surface vessels. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that character in The Hunt for October. What's his name? Uh, Jonesy. Jonesy, and he can and he can hear some singing from the Russian submarine, and for for a while nobody completely believes him. Yeah, yeah, well, those people do exist. I mean, the chief of the boat in The Hunt for Red October that was telling stories about Jonesy's uh, uh, skills, he was a real uh, US Navy chief of the boat. So, I mean, the people do exist. They exist in all the navies. Those particular characters, those particular guys that are in the sound room, as they call the sonar, um, place in in a British submarine, and they are they are guys that have a specialist skill, and they, they do exist, and that, there are people like that for sure. Are there alternative ways to detect submarines today? Uh, well, well, obviously you sight. You know, if you put your periscope up, and there's another periscope there, you've got them. Um, and uh, but a sonar is still the thing, really. I mean, if, if uh, a submarine's on the surface and uh, a submerged submarine puts up the radar mast very fleetingly it could try that but that'd be very unlikely i don't think they'd use radar for that it's still sound that's the thing that's the killer the royal navy has been developing submarines since 1901 and their development was controversial with admiral sir arthur wilson vc describing them as underhand unfair and damned un-english Today, submarines play a vital role in UK defence and those of other nations who operate them, and yet they still court controversy, especially in the UK. Ian, could you just tell us about the types of submarines that are currently in service with the Royal Navy and what their different roles are? There's just one kind of submarine in terms of propulsion, and that's Euclipad. And there's two, two types. There's the Astute class and Trafalgar class uh, hunter killers. The uh, attack submarines are the ones that hunt down other submarines or protect uh, the ballistic missile boats, the SSBNs, as they're called, and those are Vanguard class at the moment. There are four of those, and there's going to be a new generation of uh, Trident missile submarines called uh, the Dreadnought class in um, a decade or so's time from now, if all goes according to plan. So the Royal Navy uh, came out of the diesel-electric game uh, in the early 90s, and that was the Upholder class, which are now in the Canadian Navy, used in the, by the Canadians. So the Royal Navy has... Uh, now got seven or will have seven astute class submarines and four uh, vanguards to be replaced by dreadnoughts so those that, that's it for the royal navy at the moment and uh, during the cold war i think there were 17 uh hunter killers and about another dozen diesel electric submarines but that mix is now no longer there and are those boats operated all at the same time like everything uh whether it's a car or you know a house that uh needs redoing you know a submarine or need a bit of a refit a bit of a, a brush up and new new equipment to go in 
uh, maybe the compartments to be improved. So submarines will be taken out of service for refueling. That's for nuclear refueling. Uh, and that's a major job. So there's always one uh, Vanguard-class ballistic missile submarine in refit uh, undergoing, let's say, two or three years' worth of work. And uh, it's like a 10,000-mile service. And uh, then the new, uh, the hunter killers, again, there'll, there'll be some in refit, some in, in maintenance. But, of course, the guys need to get a break between patrols as well. And on the hunter killers, they they uh, uh, they may well, I think, now be operating a system where they have more than one crew per boat. And certainly they do that with the ballistic missile submarines. So they can keep the guys trained and, and rested ashore while another crew takes the same submarine out on patrol. So they're very hard worked, but they will be out of service, uh, whether it's for maintenance or refit or just because they've come back from a patrol. Uh, they, they won't always be all in service at the same time. Your description kind of reminds me how airlines are run. The plane comes back and they spot the crew mm. and it goes out again. Yeah, yeah, that is what they do. Yeah, it's uh, they, uh, they do it in the American Navy as well. And in the American Navy, they have uh, four uh, guided missile submarines and a uh, higher class, massive boats that are uh, can carry 154 cruise missiles and Navy SEALs. And they have a command center. And those four submarines... Are, are very intriguing because they are always uh, there is always two or three of those at sea and air wherever uh, the US president might need that boat and uh, so that's a kind of gunboat diplomacy use of what was a Trident missile submarine converted to carry cruise missiles and special forces that is always out there as well and they run those with two crews as well to keep them always at sea. As you're saying it's like gunboat diplomacy and it always needs to be ready. Yeah, and they show them every now and again. That's one kind of submarine that, that is showed because during one of the recent contretemps with North Korea, uh, one of those boats was sent into uh, a South Korean port very visibly at the time, the height of the crisis, as if to say, look, we've got a whole battery of cruise missiles here and uh, a load of special forces waiting. So those that's one kind of submarine that is used to send a message visually. Uh, you wouldn't do that with hunter-killers or trident missile submarines because you want to keep them hidden at all times how do royal navy submarines stack up in comparison to other navies they're among the best they always always will be it's uh, it's horses for courses obviously but uh, the royal navy with less resources than let's say the u.s navy has to squeeze more uh, roles out of a particular boat but i think all navies are now because nuclear powered submarines are so expensive and the jobs they need to do are so so uh, varied they now have submarines that do more than just go out and hunt ships they they all carry special forces they'll all have cruise missiles or cruise missile capability so you know everybody has to have a, a multitude of roles so they're, they're not purebred um, hunter killers in the sense they used to be but they can still do that role so the, the astute class will still be able to do all that and uh, their job will be to protect the ballistic missile submarines riding shotgun on them but also maybe to take who knows, special forces somewhere or, or launch cruise missiles against a land target. So they're all like that. And the Royal Navy has, you know, maximised capability in its, uh, what will be its seven astute class submarines. Are there any direct naval threats to the UK and our allies today? Uh, navies, it's, uh, it's a topic that's difficult, for, sometimes difficult to for people to understand at this distance from World War Two or even the Cold War. But um, navies are always eyeing each other up in terms of uh, what's the potential threat. Because there is no time to learn and no time to create a vessel the day that something turns hot. So they're always assessing, you know, who who might the foe be? What capabilities will I need? How many will I need? That's always being assessed. So, and, it, you know, since the end of the Cold War, there has been a period of 
of um, nothing much happening, which was let's say 1991 to 2001. There wasn't. It was just exercises. Everybody was getting along. The Russians were being pals with the, the British and the Americans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. China had not risen. But then we after after 9/11, you had. First of all, you had the threat from Al Qaeda, and then you know evolved into ISIL and submarines, uh, Russian American submarines, and surface vessels have played a role in fighting uh, that asymmetric threat in Syria and Afghanistan and elsewhere, and so are British submarines. And then you know um, as time has progressed, we've seen the old game of uh, geopolitics assert itself and the rivalry between Russia and the West and China, particularly in the South China Sea, exerting itself with a powerful navy. So I think the uh, the game, uh, it's, not, it's not a great game, it's a pretty terrible game, but the, the, the contest or the latent contest uh, between the powers is, is on again and has been for the past few years. And that, that is the way things are going. It's a maritime era and anybody that um, has got any pretensions to having influence in the world is getting a big navy or a capable navy let's say and uh, trying to be out there with the best they can field and uh, hopefully it won't turn into anything too dangerous but you know i think the old rules are gone over the years there's been an increasing amount of stories in the press regarding russian submarines secretly moving into british waters and testing our defenses can you talk to us about this i think the russians will always do that and we'll we'd all probably also where we can try and do it to them and um, so it's something that never went away it just went into a lull so certainly Russia uh, sees its navy uh, being in the vanguard of uh, its national prestige and going back to Peter the Great who who established St. Petersburg and Murmansk and uh, Archangel and all the rest of it probably not Murmansk that was World War One but certainly Peter the Great established Archangel and St. Petersburg and was keen on getting control of the Black Sea if he could and he's, and people like Catherine the Great did aspire to that. They've always, Russian rulers have always looked to the sea and trying to make sure that Russia is not cut off from the sea because its access is restricted. So the Russians will will put their navy out there to, uh, to rival anybody they see as a threat uh, to their access to the sea. So looking at things from Moscow's point of view, they, they do fear NATO, so they look at um, Britain as a key NATO player and somebody that they've been uh, rivals with in the past, and the same goes for America, and they will seek to test Britain, whether it's in the air with, with bear bombers or with uh, submarines. So that's, that's just part of what goes on. And certainly in recent years, they've decided that as the Navy in the UK has declined, that that's a vulnerability anti-submarine warfare capabilities particularly those that's that is a vulnerability the russians decided to prod and they've done it because we've made it vulnerable because britain's cut its asw capabilities in in 2010 quite radically by getting rid of the nimrod and the nimrod replacement thinking it could rely on you know borrowing things that it wasn't much of a problem and so the russians have exploited vulnerabilities and they will always try and trail our ballistic missile submarines to get their what they call their signature so they can mark down where they are. The sound signature you mentioned is uh, quite important for submarine detection, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's the, uh, you might call it the holy grail, is for uh, a navy on either side to record the actual distinctive signature of a particular type of submarine or even a, a particular submarine or vessel. So they put it in their library, their recording library, and they then know exactly what it is they're up against. So... That is uh, what, uh, since the Cold War, 
when this sort of thing started really that's what people have tried to do they try to get out there and pin down uh, who these people are in these ships what kind of ships they are because then they'll know what weapons they've got and uh, of course trail them if they're other submarines so that if anything ever goes wrong they're in a position to eliminate them basically in your excellent book, Hunter Killers, you describe many secret Cold War missions that submarines undertook at great political risk and personal risk to the crew. These missions were typically intelligence gathering missions deep in hostile waters. Why are submarines so good for intelligence gathering missions and what type of intelligence are they good at gathering? Well, submarines obviously can stay hidden and unless they give themselves away, you won't know they're there because, and that means that you don't know that... Uh, the enemy has your uh, information. Uh, for example, if a, a submarine goes up into the Barents Sea during the Cold War, the submarine is looking to, uh, first of all, visually uh, spy on, let's say, a missile firing or a weapons firing by the, Ru the Russian Northern Fleet and uh, record via a video camera or, so or stills camera a particular vessel or a weapon being used. And then they'll try and, uh, if it's a new warship, they'll record the sound signature, and they'll record all sorts of things. Or, or they will detect a new radar, and they will pin down what that radar is so they, they know when they detect it in the future that this is a particular ship and there's a particular threat. And so they, they can do all that, and they hope to go up there, go in there, and the same would be true of the Russians whether off the American coast, down in you know, or Florida where they test the Trident missile submarines, even today, uh, or in the, the Pacific um, with the Chinese and the Japanese and the Americans today trying to record each other's submarines. So that they, they would wish to record all of that stuff without you knowing they're there. And that is that is the absolute objective, because then you've got the edge. So if you send an, an aircraft, which did happen during the Cold War, an aircraft, um, obviously, uh, into uh, airspace over the Soviet Union, like Gary Powers when he was shot down, uh, that was an obvious um, example of that. That's the danger you run. You, your aircraft can be shot down, and also the Russians will know you're up there. And there were certainly many other uh, incidents uh, that turned a bit nasty of aircraft, British and American, going over the uh, the Warsaw Pact countries and being attacked, shot down, chased. So the point of a submarine is you didn't know it was there, and therefore you're not aware the enemy has that killer detail on you. Can you give us a few examples of these top-secret Cold War missions? You describe many in your book, and they're all riveting. In the uh, the early days, shall we say, in the 50s, the, the British uh, didn't have uh, the late 50s and into the early 60s. The British didn't have nuclear-powered submarines, so they would send uh, advanced, um, uh, what they call Super-T submarines, which were adapted World War II boats uh, that had more power, more stealth, and had an intelligence gathering compartments inserted into them. They would send those diesel electric submarines up to loiter off uh, off the Kola Peninsula or somewhere else in the Barents Sea to try and do all that intelligence gathering. And those those missions were extremely grim. I mean, they were the stuff of legend, you know, people being rationed on water and food and air and being sent to their bunks because they couldn't take in air because the Russians were around, so they had to stay down without the snort mask going up to breathe. So these guys would be sent to their bunks to rest and sleep. And then they would say, you've only got a few pints of water today, or you can only have half a pint of water today and we can't wash. And it was grimmest of grim uh, for the British Mariners. And you had uh, uh, names like Turpin and Taciturn. Those are two of the tea boats that feature in my book. And those were real, um, you know, Das Boot style uh, deployments and the Russians sometimes detected them and would use low power depth charges 
and uh, try and pursue them with aircraft and helicopters and uh, and on one occasion uh, even a torpedo fired to kind of scare them off so those guys got up to all sorts and fortunately uh, for us for the british they didn't come to any grief the american an american diesel submarine did so that was another reason the americans went as early as they could for nuclear power because uh, they were caught so um, that that was unfortunate for them but uh, certainly the british persisted with these electric submarines for a long long time after the other two and um, it was incredible the um, the stamina and endurance of those crews and they never got any thanks and it was very secret at the time so um, those were unsung heroes i think of the cold war their deployments were up to 90 days at a time oh yeah and you know the nuclear powered submarines that were sent up there in the uh, mid to late 60s um, for the british the late 60s were um were also sent up there for a long, long time, and that ha- that was going on right into the 80s. Uh, guys going up in particular boats, particular submarines that were specialists in intelligence gathering, and uh, they they also were the kind of unsung heroes of the Cold War. Um, wasn't as grim perhaps, but it was still psychologically uh, wearing, and uh, it could also be dangerous, very dangerous up there in the Russian backyard. So uh, it went on for uh, decades. And the danger they were facing was being sunk or captured, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, that was the fear, was that they would uh, be sunk and nobody would know about it because it wouldn't be acknowledged or, you know, they would could be captured, but it, it didn't happen. I mean, there were accidents uh, on both sides in which submarines were lost, uh, but I don't think there, were, there weren't, as far as I know, any actual instances of combat between submarines. Some of these missions were quite bold, weren't they? Some of them went deep into Russian territory. Am I right in thinking it was the HMS Taciturn that went deep into Russian territory? If you read the uh, the stuff, obviously, in the Royal Navy Submarine Museum, there's an eyewitness account of that by one of the sailors that was aboard, and he seems to indicate that they were uh, certainly on the territorial line. They were at least, you know, just outside territorial waters and were able to gather intelligence on radar stations and things like that, and I'm sure other things went on, but, you know, there's only so much you, uh, you get told. I'm sure there are many stories many years from now will be told. Maybe, maybe not. But, uh, yeah, they were pretty daring. And, I, you know, from what I understand, they were very daring. So there you go. You mentioned radar intelligence. What kind of things were they looking for? For example, uh, this is in the uh, the 80s, you know, a nuclear submarine a British nuclear submarine was in the Barents um, and came across a barge, uh, a tethered barge, and this was uh, either a target or um, for a missile, Russian missile firing, uh, um, or something else. So they would they would stake out that particular barge and wait to see what happened, and then sooner or later, a missile comes in and blows it to pieces or hits it and just you know puts a rather large hole in it, and they were there to record that. On uh, on video or photograph it, and that's that's not. In my, I've mentioned that in my book, but also in other book uh, books. In after my book, there was one particular book that went even uh, deeper into some of that stuff, uh, which will remain nameless. And uh, certainly, Hunter Killers was the first uh, account for the British to put out there some of the real uh, nitty gritty on uh, some of these patrols and. Uh, that's what uh, we did, and we were very careful what we put out there. But among the things they did was, you know, waited to see weapons being fired and waited to see the enemy using radar and things like that. Uh, so they were they were up there whenever they could, and it, it was as I say, it was 
quite risky some of it am i right the the north pole features on a few yeah the north pole uh was uh under the the, the arctic ice cap was a a key area because the russians towards the end of the cold war were uh, were able to send out their latest uh, delta typhoon uh, and typhoon class submarines to to hide under the ice and wait for doomsday and they would sit there or loiter there um and wait for that day when you know, God forbid, they fired their missiles. And that was called the Bastion concept because the idea the Russians had was to send out their boats a short distance, hide under the ice in a well-protected area with your own hunter-killer submarines around and sensors and just sit there with a very long-range missiles that could hit America or Britain or anywhere else and wait. And that's that was called a Bastion. And the Chinese are doing trying to do that today in the South China Sea. And that way your your submarine doesn't have to make any noise at all because it just loiters or sits there and then, boom, it fires its missiles. And we can all kiss our you-know-what's goodbye. So, uh, yeah. So the ice provides perfect cover, effectively. Yeah, yeah. Very difficult to get under. And when that started in the... Uh, really got into its stride, the Bastion concept really got into its stride in the, the 80s, then the Royal Navy's uh, submariners found that they were tasked with uh, going under the ice to, uh, again, but this time in nuclear-powered boats, deep under the ice to try and get these guys so as mentioned in the um in hunter killers uh, there were there were substantial trials by the americans and british to make sure their torpedoes would run under the ice and so they would go up under the ice to near the north pole and fire torpedoes to check they would run uh, to get those submarines under the ice so it was a very demanding and dangerous environment sorry forgive me the so the testing of the torpedoes was to see how effective they were in the cold water yeah i mean obviously wire guided torpedoes uh, uh, is what they use today with you know miles of uh, wire to guide them so an ele- electronic impulse has to travel along that wire to guide the torpedo until it gets close to its target when the its own sonar kicks in and then it just takes it the the final bit so uh, i wouldn't know the exact details but they certainly wanted to make sure that uh, the the whole thing functioned under there uh, with different types of torpedoes british and american so there's a lot of that went on and it's still a skill that uh, the royal navy and the u.s navy in particular will want to look at because the the russians will will continue using the bastion concept uh, i'm sure under the uh, the arctic ice are submarines still used for intelligence gathering in this way today? Um, yeah, C- certainly the uh, the uh, uh, missions by um, uh, the O boats, the Oberon class diesel electric boats. There were two of them in uh, Desert Storm in 1991. Uh, I've been there's not a lot out there, but it's been written about in various places. And I had it in Hunter Killers, and I've got more on that in uh, in the Deadly Trade as well. And I met uh, the captain of, of one of them uh, when I was a newspaper reporter, and he couldn't he wouldn't want to tell me anything. He came in to see me at the newspaper I was working at, and he said, uh, you know, we left Pitcairn Island uh, on this date. And we came through the Suez Canal on this date. This was months later. And he said, what we did between then and now, I can't really tell you. And you'll have to guess. So, I mean, they were off the Kuwaiti coast landing special forces to go and uh, reconnoitre targets of the Iraqi troops on the coast there. And they had to contend with mines and oil in the water and also uh, even ships being sunk on top of them while they were recovering special forces troops, which was tricky for them. Uh, and uh, so that that was... Uh, a fairly that is a fairly well known example of that, uh, but then obviously in the 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 war on terror as it was called post nine eleven, submarines were certainly used east of Suez and elsewhere 
to, and this includes Dutch submarines as well, because uh, um, they have certainly been in the game too, and I'm sure the French have. Uh, the leading operators in the West were certainly using submarines throughout uh, the period from 2001 onwards to to use their, their periscopes, their radar, uh, other sensors to track potential terrorist shipments and also uh, also with piracy of Somalia, most particularly, to uh, do a lot of intelligence gathering on what the pirates were up to there. So those submarines showed their paces there. And, of course, cruise missiles are a bit of a game changer for submarines, and uh, they were fired into Afghanistan in October uh, 2001 after 9-11 and have continued to be used in various places by the Americans and the British as well uh, to try and assassinate key people. Not always successful. It's something I look at in the deadly trade. Uh, not always successful. And um, it's a kind of political silver bullet, the cruise missile submarine, uh, because you think you're going to get somebody and you can fire a missile and there'll be no problem with troops on the ground and you can eliminate that person and then you've, you've done it. But in fact, it's, it all depends on intelligence. And certainly during the Iraq war of 2003, uh, the intelligence gap between the intelligence being found and the submarine getting it was, was down and down and down. And I'm sure today it's even shorter. Um, but it relies on good intelligence. So you, you get your intelligence. For example, Saddam was in his, in his um, uh, palace uh, on the night uh, in March 2003, just before they were launching the invasion of Iraq. Uh, there was a, a Duff source um, sold a dummy to uh, American intelligence and they fired submarine and um, ship launch cruise missiles at this target. And of course, he was never there because he's not dumb. He's not going to stay in that particular palace when the war's about to break out. So although they got the gap down and the technology down to get so-called intelligence to a submarine or a surface warship in, let's say, an hour or two, um, it still wasn't any good if the intelligence was rubbish. So, <laughs> you know, submarines are used in a variety of roles and can be stitched in to that kind of mission now using intelligence. But if the intelligence is rubbish, you know, then you're not going to achieve anything. No, exactly. And I suppose as you were saying about the time is like two hours, whatever it is from both communicating to the submarine and then being able to fire the cruise missile, it's a long time in the real world. And I know um, that's what's led to the development of armed drones. I read, uh, I think it was Harry Crumpton's memoir about his time in the CIA, and he recounts a story in which in the early part of the Afghanistan war, they had Bin Laden in their sights, and they could have got him. But um, at the time, the only option they had were cruise missiles, and it would have taken two to three hours for that cruise missile to reach him. And there was just no guarantee that Bin Laden would still be there in that time, so they had to let him go. I'm a bit more definitive in uh, in in the next book because I've looked a little bit more into that and so apologies if I've got the timing slightly wrong but um, I did interview the captain of uh, Turbulent back in 2004 so I got quite an interesting insight into how all that stuff was coming in but as you say you know let's face it you know um, it's the real world that we're dealing with and so people uh, a can give you duff intelligence B it can take too long and C uh, somebody will get away you know and so you have to send people in navy seals to to in the case of bin laden to uh, make sure you uh, you get that guy you mentioned earlier that special forces sometimes deploy from submarines do you have any good examples of that <laughs> uh probably kill me if i tell you um <laughs> no I, I mean i'm 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 being pretentious there i mean I, I i remember i once said um to uh a member of uh british special forces who i knew uh wouldn't it be great if we did a uh, 
a story on what you did um, <laughs> in Iraq and Kuwait, uh, from, and this guy would have come from the sea, and he said, well, <laughs> in no way we're ever going to talk about it. So um, even though I knew him quite well, that was not going to happen. So there are examples, of course, and, it, you know, of all the forces that don't hide this, I think the Americans are the most open. And so, it's, you know, there are photographs out there, and we do know that they uh, use swimmer delivery vehicles, the little mini subs, like swimming out James Bond, and, and the Ohio-class ballistic uh, guided missile submarine, sorry. Uh, those ones I talked about earlier with the 154 cruise missiles, they have dry deck shelters on them that are hangars, for little mini submarines and you know they're quite open about it you know they come up to a depth where they can be launched and in they go so you know special forces are clearly you know uh used um from submarines and you know that goes back for Brit for britain obviously to world war Two. i must admit it's not a huge focus of uh, what i've written in a book but i have i have written about it for newspapers and for example the cockle shell heroes in world war Two were launched from hms tuna in uh off uh off um uh, the estuary, I think it was the Gironde, to go up to uh, Bordeaux with their canoes. I mean, that came from a submarine. They went in, and although they didn't necessarily succeed entirely, that was a, a good example of an early mission by uh, commandos to go from a submarine to try and attack shipping. And there's the, the Kuwaiti guys uh, who were aboard the, o the British Oberon-class submarine. So, yeah, they for sure have used it for years and still do. And in, and And particularly in the uh, one example in the Korean War uh, was the USS Perch, which actually launched raw marines on missions in the Korean War. And um, I don't want to give too much away, but I've looked into that for the um, for a chapter in The Deadly Trade, and it's quite interesting. It's not a huge part of the story, but um, that was a specially adapted submarine uh, designed for that particular mission and not necessarily totally successful, but it was certainly sent ashore a raiding party that did a bit of damage to uh, the North Korean railway system. So it's been going on for decades and what they exactly they're doing now, I'm afraid I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not privy to that. I'm not, my friend, my friend, my friend might have words with me and sort me out. Not to worry. I think what I know, the, the North Koreans use it as a tactic. Um, when I was in South Korea back in, was it 2002, there were posters all over the tube trains or their version of the tube trains warning people to be on the lookout for North Korean submarines by the coast. Uh, there was a great fear that submarines could be deploying people, special forces, and sometimes even submarines have been involved in kidnapping. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, no, that's true. I mean, I don't know. I, I remember I was in, um, when down to Gibraltar in, I think, 97, 96. And uh, when I was there, I, was, I decided we'd have a, you know, we had a spare day, so we'd go across to Tangier. And, uh, and so we went across there, and on the ferry... Uh, the TV screen, the TV was on, and there was this picture of um, a news broadcast of a, a North Korean mini submarine that had come ashore in the le at that time. And those guys had, I think, fought it out with the South Koreans because they were there to snatch people, as you say, and uh, do other things. So they were caught. But the one, the one that got away was the one that sank the uh, South Korean Corvette back in 2010, and uh, that was definitely a, a North Korean mini sub or submarine of some kind because uh, they found the torpedo with the north korean markings the, the wreckage of it so the, the north koreans are definitely ace practitioners of sneaky underwater warfare with smaller submarines whether they graduate to anything else remains to be seen yeah let's hope not it won't last long if they do so because i'm sure the americans the japanese and the south koreans will be keen to stop any ballistic missile submarine that um 
North Korea has getting too far. That must be the most watched part of the world at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, well, they've, yeah, well, we'll see what happens, eh? Let's hope sense prevails. I tell you, I, I much prefer this sort of stuff in fiction than I do in reality. Exactly, yeah. It's crazy. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter, at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Earlier we talked about nuclear power. Now I'd like to talk about nuclear weapons. The Royal Navy currently has four nuclear-armed submarines that provide what is known as a continuous deterrence at sea. These submarines each use what is called the Trident Weapons System. This system is now reaching the end of its operational lifespan, and the Ministry of Defence has called for it to be renewed at an approximate cost of £31 billion, with another £10 billion put aside for additional costs. So we're talking a lot of money here. The renewal of Trident and the costs involved have become a hotly debated topic, especially so post during the recent UK election. So Ian, let's dive into this hotly debated topic. First off, can you give us an overview of what Trident is, how it came about, and why the Royal Navy feels that we need to replace it? Uh, tri- Trident is... Um, one of the misconceptions is that Trident is a combat system. It's not a combat system. It's a political tool. It's not a weapon system. Uh, it is designed to be a weapon system to be operated with serious intent to to fire at any time uh, of of the day or night at any time of the year. But in reality, it's not something that you should look at as a weapon. It's a diplomatic tool. It's there to deter a potential attack. So there are four submarines that, as we've discussed, will patrol out there, and they're armed with these missiles, and they're supposed to be the the ultimate insurance policy against somebody else threatening to attack Britain with uh, with nuclear weapons uh, or trying anything else that would threaten the UK or its allies that would be pretty serious. So it's a deterrent system. It's, it's, it's not a substitute and shouldn't be a substitute for conventional deterrence because conventional deterrence is essential because you don't want to go from what a submarine captain friend of mine called Dad's Army to nuclear Armageddon. So, and that's, that's the problem that the UK and Europe perhaps has today. It has Dad's army, and that's just being, I'm obviously joking there in a way, but I'm just saying that it has uh, armed forces that are uh, lack critical mass, that don't have the capabilities that perhaps they should have, that are small, so a small army, small air forces, small navies, and then in the case of France uh, and Britain, slightly bigger ones, but then really there's not a lot of conventional deterrence offered by France or Britain before you reach the nuclear weapons. So the nuclear weapons system is mutually assured destruction. It's meant to be part of a graduated uh, response. Let's say the Russians um, invade the Baltics. Uh, It's a graduated response. You don't immediately say, we're going to nuke you because then Putin will call you a bluff or, you know, it will be the end of mankind. So what you're meant to do is you're meant to say, look, if you move on the Baltics, we will... We've got this number of um, conventional forces that will prevent you from crossing that line if you try it. And he thinks, okay, I won't try it. And then, you know, and then if they uh, they then say to him, but if you go any further than that, you know, we're there with the nuclear deterrent. But that should should not be used as something to threaten destruction upon somebody. It should be there to deter um, the enemy from making a particular move. And they should think, well, we won't bother because the possibility is there. So it's a it's a crazy kind of paradox that these are kind of weapons for peace 
in that they, they are meant to stop major war. But the problem of today is, I think, that uh, the system's a little bit broken. And I think some politicians now think that these things are there to be used, that you can even use them and you can't use them. So you get threats from the Russians against uh, Denmark or Norway if they take part in an anti ballistic missile shield, you know, we'll nuke your ships if you do that. And the Russians are working on all sorts of different levels of nuclear weapons. Uh, and then uh, other people maybe think that you can use them as well, whether whoever it might be. And I think that's a very, the world is in a very dangerous place and we need to get some sanity. But in terms of the British Trident uh, deterrent, then uh, the government has decided that it will carry on with that. And, um, pay uh, quite a lot of money for it and uh, that isn't necessarily popular for some people um, and the figures are and you, you have to forgive me for a second you know, I'm dredging through my memory here but the the British the British deterrent um, the dreadnought class the cost is estimated at more than 31 billion although CND is saying that it could be hundreds of million uh, sorry not million billions CND is saying it could be hundreds of billions so it depends who you consult and who you, who you listen to. Uh, and that's over the 30-year life of it. So they, whether or not we um, go the full distance with the programme, I personally am not entirely certain because it depends on who's in government. And if, you know, if the May government falls within the next few months, the Dreadnought programme could be over because I don't think, although they say they will continue with it, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn will uh, continue with the Dreadnought programme. So <laughs> we could go into that. But um, well, one of the interesting things about Corbyn in the last election, during the election, he said he was committed to Trident. Yet as soon as the election was over, there were comments made that he was now going to give up on Trident. So, yeah, who knows with that one? Yeah, I, th I think what I think what's missing is just a sensible debate by everybody about this thing. Rather than use it as, uh, I know it's used as a political football, that's inevitable. But to kind of look at what what does it mean to Britain? What does it achieve for Britain? What balance do we want between conventional forces and nuclear forces? And, you know, does it really serve our country? And, you know, is it absolutely necessary? A mature debate about that. Instead of people saying, I'm for it or I'm against it, but not really understanding what it is and why they're for it. And then decide. But I'm afraid when it comes to defence and naval matters as well, uh, we don't seem to get that. So who knows? There have been a lot of misunderstanding and claims about Trident during the debate over its renewal. Mm -hmm. Let's go through some of these claims. By having Trident, it makes us a target to other nuclear states such as China, Pakistan, North Korea and Russia. I don't think having Trident makes us a target. Um, I think um, I think we're a target anyway. Um but it depends on the rationale behind why they would want to attack us. I mean, the Russians target us probably because we're targeting them. And the Chinese may target us because we're targeting them. Um, but I don't, I think that even without, um, even without Trident, I think uh, it's a fact of life that in this madness of, you know, sure destruction, that um, even if we didn't have Trident, and the fact that we will have nuclear submarines and are a major naval, uh, still a major naval power that may seek to block the Russians means that we would get some of those nuclear warheads in in the event of, you know, absolute insanity of uh, them being launched. Trident is a first strike system. Yeah, well, the, the, there has been a change in UK government policy 
that it is a, a first strike system, which is quite bizarre, really, um, um, because that was not the policy for a long time. And some of the people I know were Cold War submarine captains were very surprised and quite appalled by that, that um, it would be considered as first strike system because the whole point of it was to deter um, an attack, not to threaten an attack. So that, that's, that's something that um, is now UK policy. But, you know, when I investigated that recently, uh, actually the first strike option has been there for many years in America. So um, it's all part of this poker game. Am I am I right in remembering in regards to America, uh, Obama in his last year as president claimed that they were no longer going to adopt a first strike policy with regards to his nuclear weapons? Yeah, I think you're correct there, but you know what that is now. Um, but you know, <laughs> I don't know. Feels like a long time since Obama. Yeah, it has. Yeah, a whole universe, different era. Yeah, feels like a lifetime, doesn't it? Each week feels like a lifetime. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm just glad it's not what I have to cover. Yeah. Now the next claim is that Trident is run on a windows operating system making it vulnerable to attack i don't that's not true no it's <laughs> not true you know simple yeah yeah, yeah. It, it comes up a lot this comment. yeah it does yeah i mean I, I you know yeah yeah well i was i was a newspaper reporter you know i know the reality of uh, newspapers i mean trump calls it uh, fake news i would call it news written to suit the newspaper's agenda and I've, you know, I know how it works. You know, no newspaper is objective, and you'll get one on the right, one in the middle, one on the left. And you know, sometimes these stories embed themselves in uh, the the reporter or the newspaper's psyche, and in their in their inventory of stuff they say, and uh, it just gets recycled. But it's 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 not true. So there you go. So the next claim, Trident is secretly run by America, and we need their authorization to use it because it's so unlikely that Britain. I mean, it's, you know, it surely can never happen that Britain would ever launch a missile um, at anybody, a nuclear missile at anybody for any reason. Therefore, the idea that a Vanguard-class or Dreadnought-class submarine would launch a missile just out of the blue for whatever particular reason, well, it wouldn't be out of the blue, it'd be during a crisis, is just incredible or unbelievable. Uh, so the likelihood is that as we're part of NATO at the moment, uh, for now NATO exists, then it's got to be within the context of NATO. And so NATO nuclear forces are delivered by America and Britain uh, and, you know, also France, I guess, although they've always been a semi-detached member of NATO. So, but the core is Britain and America. Now, the missile warheads are, and, I, you know, somebody may correct me because it's a long time since I wrote some of this stuff. So the missile warheads are uh, are British and the bodies are American. So the Americans maintain the bodies of the Trident missiles. So in that way, they own, um, you could say, they've got an influence there on the bodies. And, and of course, the new generation submarines are having missile compartments built by America and Britain together. Both the Columbia class, the new American SSBN, and the Dreadnought class will have the same uh, missile compartments, although the Americans will have slightly more missiles. And so the American and British nuclear deterrent forces are very integrated and, and the British submarines need to go to Florida to test fire their missiles and so you know it's essential so I wouldn't say that they own it in secret and can stop it as simple as that but it's true I would say that you can't really call it 100% independent in terms of the missile system although politically of course yeah, they would say it is independent. And as he was saying, it's highly unlikely Britain would do a first strike mm. out of the blue. Mm. 
at least without it being connected to an ongoing issue that NATO or certainly America would have some sort of involvement in. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, uh, I've written two books uh, on submarine warfare, and the current, the next one does look uh, in depth at the end at the kind of broken mechanism of of mutually assured destruction and the dangerous state we're now in, um, which is, uh, uh, and I, I, you know. I understand why they are weapons for peace. I understand they saved millions of lives and prevented a world war. But what I don't understand is why the international community cannot get together uh, under the um, auspices of the UN to kind of try and get rid of the war. I know there are organisations trying it, but it just seems impossible to stop countries thinking they need this, this big hammer. And so more and more countries are aspiring for it. The Indians are now sending nuclear missile submarines to sea and it, it won't be long until Pakistan has slightly less sophisticated nuclear missile submarines and China's upgrading its things so you know it's bewildering in many ways to think that we're all going down this path because people think they have to have them because they're all so afraid and yet I cannot think I cannot think of any circumstance really in sanity you know in sane circumstance uh, or reasonable circumstances where nuclear weapons would be used. But the one problem there, of course, is uh, what we saw with North Korea, where um, we have um, President Trump drawing red lines, and the North Korean guy threatening to go across them. You know, So that is, you know, you then think, well, how does deterrence work with, with that situation? You know, so, um, but in terms of the British, I can't, I can't see Britain unless we have some kind of insane person at the helm ever firing nuclear weapons at somebody but you know having said that the nuclear deterrent is still operated to prevent somebody firing them at us and that's the point it's a deterrent so the idea of first strike to me is an anathema uh, but you know deterrent is maybe something i understand as you were saying it only works if there are other conventional force options before that worst case scenario yeah yeah and it, and it only and it also only works if the people that you're dealing with are rational um, and that's the point. But certainly, I can see the virtue in deterrence, but I can't. I personally cannot see why anybody would ever want to do first strike, uh, or even entertain the idea that they're actually weapons to be used in a war. Uh, and we wouldn't want any war at all. But you know, why? Why would you? Why would you do that? I don't know. But certainly, I understand the logic of deterrence. But I do worry that the whole uh, balance that was there during the Cold War has gone. Let's move on to another claim. Yeah, that's pretty miserable, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, this one isn't any cheerier. The next claim is money spent on Trident takes money away from the public services, such as the NHS. Um, probably it does, but I mean, it, you, as a nation, you have to you have to decide what you want. You know, so um, if you want to, if you uh, as a nation and as a government believe that trident deterrent actually prevents somebody from making any kind of a major attack on you then you know that amount of money 31 billion as the mod would have it plus a contingency fund uh, over 30 years is probably not huge i mean um in 2016 the government spent 146.4 billion on health 86.2 on education 47 billion on defense you know these are mind-blowing figures and 13.3 billion in 2016 on uh, overseas aid so uh, I guess in government, where they have to divvy up the pie, they have to look at what the value is there. And if, if as a nation we still believe in it, then uh, you have to devote some money to it. Um, but, you know, I don't know uh, 
per pound, if you looked at it per pound, how much it would be taking from an NHS or, or vice versa. It's not my area of expertise, as Count Arthur Strong would say. Yeah. So, uh, you know. Well, here's another claim. So supporting Trident apparently means that you want nuclear war. I don't think it means that. No, I don't think it means that. I don't think anybody supports nuclear war. Um, I don't think anybody really supports war unless they've got an ambition that needs them to do violence to somebody. So I don't think it's, it's support or don't support. I don't I don't think people that uh, say we need a nuclear deterrent support nuclear war because I don't, you know, I I, I, uh, I just don't believe that. I don't believe that. I think they're, they're sincere in that they, they're thinking, I mean, how do we prevent a war that kills tens, if not hundreds of millions of people? That's what the generation that, that founded the nuclear deterrence of, of all the countries that took part in the Second World War were thinking. They were, these are the people, like Harold Macmillan had fought in the trenches in uh, in World War One and seen that incredible slaughter. And John F. Kennedy had uh, been a PT boat captain in uh, World War Two, and he, his brother was killed uh, in the U.S. Navy World War Two. And you know, so that whole generation of politicians knew what the destructive power of conventional weaponry in the tens of millions of people. They'd seen the personal cost of people that died, and their their ambition was to prevent that from ever happening again. And so millions of people did die in the Cold War. It was a terrible terrible thing that all these people died in Hungary and Vietnam and everywhere else but the, the whole point of uh, Harold Macmillan and John F Kennedy's agreement uh, in, 19, in the early 60s for Britain to have a nuclear deterrent was to prevent uh, a sea-based nuclear deterrent was to prevent um, major war in the best way possible and they did not want nuclear war none of those guys wanted nuclear war I mean, if you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis you know Kennedy was arguing against the wisdom of certain people like some of the Air Force generals to to go all out at Cuba. So these leaders that founded the nuclear deterrent systems of the West, Macmillan, Kennedy, whoever else, um, they were not for nuclear war. And I don't think the people that, that believe in it now are for nuclear war either. That's a long digression, but that's, that's what I'm trying to say. Well, it is good to say it because sometimes you see these programmes like Question Time and somebody tries to talk about Trident and somebody else will shout out, you're a warmonger! Yeah, I know exactly the one you're thinking of. Yeah, and, I, and it isn't... It isn't um, I understand it. I mean, it's logical, isn't it? You know, nobody wants to go up in, um, in nuclear annihilation. Nobody wants to be annihilated by all these terrible weapons. And, uh, you know, uh, so nobody wants any of that. But, so, but to depict the other side as being... Some kind of crazy Doctor Strangelove um, guy with a false arm, you know. I can't remember his name now. The President's advisor, Strange. Well, Doctor Strangelove. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. was Doctor Strange. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I'm, it's a bit stupid. It's rather obvious, isn't it? It's in the title. Yeah. To be fair, yeah. to be fair, he does play other characters in the same film. Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Wing Commander. Yeah, yeah. yeah the Wing Commander, yeah, Mandrake. Yeah. I mean, a brilliant satire on it all. But um, yeah, yeah. So I think it's. To, the problem is it's so incredibly complex. You know, I've written two books and I'm still struggling with the whole thing myself. And as a kid, I used to uh, and uh, have nightmares about nuclear weapons. I don't know how old you are, but I was when I was 14, 12, 13, I used to have I used to have nightmares about them, real bad nightmares. So I remember that period and how terrible it was. So um, you know, but you know, if it, if it stopped a global war in which tens of millions of people died then that, that had to be something that was worth looking at. Yeah, yeah. there were two uh, incredibly powerful films about nuclear war. There's The Day After, which is an American film, and then mm. there's also Threads, uh, which was a BBC film made about the same time, and they both depict the aftermath of the nuclear strike. 
and it's definitely not pleasant. And of course, the day after, I think that was that was the TV. I saw that myself, and that was the TV miniseries that so appalled Ronald Reagan. Yeah, um, yeah. That he decided, right, we've got to we've got to do something about uh, getting rid of these nukes or you know winding down the Cold War because it's getting a bit a bit a bit mad out there. And that's why he and uh, Gorbachev uh, had their series of meetings. Um, so I mean, so there you are. You know that maybe we should have dramas like that that our world leaders uh, have today so they can understand it and maybe they can all get together yeah yeah this is where the now, now forgive me it was was it the start treaty or the salt treaty strategic arms limitation is salt you have salt one salt two and that was that was i think the early 70s to to limit them and start now you're getting me now start i'd have to do a quick search in my book don't worry well an interesting part of salt i think was was that um they said one of the things we won't do is we won't have anti-ballistic missile uh, weapons. So you can't shoot ours down and we won't shoot yours down because the Russians carried on developing their own uh, anti-ballistic missile system outside around Moscow and the Americans went for Star Wars and then, you know, the Cold War ended. And so uh, and this is a bit of a digression, but we now we now have anti-ballistic missile systems. And I think that's one of the things that's really aggravated the Russians. But there again, they're seeking to upgrade their own. So maybe we need another Doctor Strangelove film to... Uh, to show all these political leaders what they're doing. You know. Yeah, we definitely need the film and not the character. And we don't need real life. No, we don't need the character. Yeah. One, one, other, one other, I'll go into more claims. So the, so the final claim, we've kind of already covered this, but some commentators when discussing Trident claim that with the increased threat of terrorism, we don't need Trident. They say it's out of date and not needed. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a weird thing, isn't it, that um, you have to be either or. You have to like uh, vanilla uh, ice cream or you have to like strawberry ice cream. And you can't like strawberry ice cream if you like vanilla. It's a kind of bizarre thing, isn't it? You can't read The Guardian if you read The Telegraph and you can't do this if you do that and all the rest of it. But the reality is that um, uh, the age of terrorism um, is also the age of geopolitical strategic manoeuvring. And so, you know, yeah, okay, you don't want to use a nuclear weapon ever. You don't especially want to use it to take out Raqqa or somewhere else like that if you can do it for other means. So uh, it's no use against your, uh, your your man in a van who's intent on slaughter. Of course it isn't. You know, that's not what they're there for. That's why you have other people. But when, you know, uh, people are waving the nuclear big stick around like uh, Vladimir Putin and his his fellow uh, leaders of Russia do quite frequently, then the only thing they understand, um, because that's how they think, is that just the fact that they shouldn't go too far. And, uh, you know, we've already been through all this stuff about mutual assured destruction and conventional deterrence. So it's all still relevant. Sad to say, it's all still relevant. So we're not just in the age of terrorism. I mean, during the Cold War, uh, Britain had to contend with uh, the, the Russian confrontation uh, contributed to uh, NATO and various other brush fire wars at the same time as Britain dealt with um, terrorism from Northern Ireland and had 13,000 troops at the end because I, I went over there a, a couple of times and I saw it at the end of the uh, the troubles. And, that, you know, you had 13,000 troops to deal with terrorism just in Northern Ireland. So, I mean, this idea that, you know, it's... We, you know, you can't use this for that, and so there's no point in having it. It's just ignoring reality as it now is, 25 years on from the end of the Cold War. Yeah, if anything, the uh, Cold War provided sort of kind of grim structure of the world, didn't it? It did. 
Yeah, and we had, we had a, ha- a halcyon period of 10 years before 9-11 where, you know, the world was a much better place and war had declined. There was not this confrontation between the superpowers. And I'm afraid that as the gears of, you know, the red wheel of history has turned, it's returned us to this period of um, tension on all levels and fear and loathing. So I'm afraid that... Um, Military forces of any kind have not gone away just yet. I just wanted to quickly ask you about the future of submarines. In the age of the drone, could submarines become obsolete? Yeah, this is something that um, I can't remember if it was a government minister or somebody else made the claim that, you know, it's pointless having a submarine because you just put a drone out there. But the problem is, once you've um, got your drone, it's going to be a drone submarine and you've you've put in the range, the weapons, uh, the power the reach, you might as well have a submarine because it's so big. Um, so I think drones are will be the future of all warfare. And there's a huge amount of uh, moral questions and problems there about drones and drone warfare. But certainly years ago, I met a guy at the Naval Engineering College in Britain who was telling me about drones. And he said, well, you know, the, the submarine will be the mother boat and the little the drones will be sent out. I mean, that's happening already with um, with mine hunters, mine hunters and destroying mines and obviously in the air as well. So there are drones, there are increasing numbers of drones, and there will be drones, but I think they will work in conjunction, in conjunction with a, a mother submarine. They need to be secretly deployed, don't they? Yeah, yeah, and, and also, I mean, you need to have a base for them to, to be launched from and maybe maintained, and you, do have, you have to have a human in the, in the loop. So drones will be there. It's, it's like with the F-35B or the F-35, whatever variety of joint strike fighter you're looking at. The idea with the F-35, one of the, the things that it, it offers to anybody that has it is the ability to control drones uh, in, from the air. So uh, the, the idea is that you have a, a an F-35 with three or four drones. So that was one of the ideas. Whether or not they're still going to go ahead with that, I don't know. But I was, again, I was told this by a naval aviator. And um, they would then work with three or four drones that would be the ones that go in. But it was the F-35 that would be the kind of nodal point to control them. Now, you know, you can see the same with submarines as well. Uh, but, you know, once you start bolting things on to a drone and you make it bigger and you make it more powerful, then it, it isn't a drone anymore and it probably needs a person in it. So, so um, yeah, it defeats the point of it. Yeah, it does. So I think they'll be there somewhere. Exactly what they'll be, I don't know. Because, of course, under the sea, you've got pressure, you've got depth, you know, pressure at depth, you've got you know, uh, all sorts of other problems that um, the technology people have to under- overcome to make the thing um, usable. And, of course, a, a sophisticated wire-guided torpedo as a computer anyway. So you could say that's an explosive drone, uh, but um, it doesn't operate autonomously, you know. So we'll see what happens. I don't know. I'm, yeah. yeah, we'll have to keep an eye yeah. out for that. Yeah, in your bath. <laughs> Any suspicious activity in the bath? That'll be a really small drone. Oh, that brings back memories. I used to have this uh, wind-up submarine that used to go around the bath. I know, another one. Yeah, another one. I had one of those as well. Yeah, I love that thing. Yeah, but never mind. Um, so just before we wrap up, and if you don't mind, I just want to ask you if you had any favourite submarine-based movies that you could recommend. I'm a huge fan of Crimson Tide and The Hunt for October. And I'm sure the listeners would love any recommendations you may have. Yeah, I mean, I had to. Um, I've got a whole stack of them myself because I, I mean, in writing um, Hunter Killers and also uh, the Deadly Trade, which obviously is the whole of Submarine Warfare, so it was a broader remit. I had to. I decided to watch all of them because some of them are based on the memoirs of um, the real life guys. So I mean, I think the one 
uh, if you've got the time. The one the one that's uh, I think probably rated by some mariners as the best is Das Boot. Uh, yeah, whether it's the three hour version or the five hour version. Uh, or in English or German, whatever version you've got. I've got about three or four and Blu-ray. Uh, <laughs> um, that is probably the best in terms of submarine life and submarine people. Uh, but in terms of quite getting the reality of it, uh, certainly the noise element of it is for drama. It's you know it's dramatised, but it's it's the one that I think most submariners would say, yeah, that that's the one. Uh, Hunt for Red October is a good movie. Um, yeah, it's a very good movie for its time, particularly with some great moments in it, particularly the moment where is it the American Secretary of the Navy says to the Russian ambassador, you've lost another submarine. You know, remember that bit? Oh, yeah. I remember that, that makes bit. me laugh, that one. Uh, but, yeah, no, but the whole thing is is very good. Um, uh, it doesn't stand out uh, well on Blu-ray because you can see that it's models and they use smoke and it wasn't really underwater, but never mind. But uh, in terms of all-time great uh, submarines, never mind Cold War ones, I think submarine dramas... Um, I think that um, Run Silent, Run Deep is pretty good because that was that was um, based on a book by uh, Ned Beach, uh, Ace American submarine captain, and you know the Johnny Mills uh, style submarine dramas. Uh, is it Above Us the Waves? That's the X craft attack on Turpits. So there's some good ones there. I'm, I put my stack of submarine movies um, in another room, so I can't look at them now. Um, but yeah, Das Boot I think is is the one. And I think some of the others are pretty good. Crimson Tide is a good drama, but that submarine is so big. I mean, it's got passages and corridors and people running around with guns. I mean, it's mad. It's mad. And <laughs> what class of submarines is it supposed to be? Well, it's supposed to be an Ohio class, but the it's a bit like, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's got all these tunnels in it where people are running around and outwitting each other. It's just ridiculous. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those. It's a good drama. Um, I'm trying to think of the others that I watched. I mean, I, I did watch... Uh, was it U five seventy or five? The one about Matthew McConaughey and the one that caused outrage. Oh yes, about Enigma. It did. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I was on holiday when it came out, and yeah. um, even Tony Blair, who was the prime minister at the yeah, time, he, he got involved. He got involved, in involved yes, in right. Well, I, I, yeah. I mean, um, um, yeah. You know, it's not, it's not the worst submarine movie ever. You know, but it's not the greatest. It, it's okay. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of the others that I've got out there. There are some good ones. I mean, the Russian one, the K, uh, the K, um, the Widowmaker. That's a good one. Oh, I've yeah. yet to see that one. Is it good? Yeah, that is a good one. Yeah, I mean, Liam Neeson's and um, Liam Neeson and uh, and Harrison Ford are the two, uh, like the EXO and the, the captain of the submarine, and their accents are a bit dodgy. But uh, you know, they <laughs> uh, I'm sure there are there's good movies there. I've forgotten to tell you about because my stack of DVDs has gone. But um, those are the ones I can think of. Don't worry, yeah. feel free to email me any more suggestions. Yeah, I put I, I put it through my library area. I'll have to go and have a look at it. But um, yeah, I mean you can't you don't want to pick the one with Cary Grant in when he paints paints a submarine pink. Operation Petticoat. Yeah, remember that one? I remember that one. Yeah, I remember seeing that yeah. one Sunday afternoon when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we've got the uh, the Beatles Yellow Submarine. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean the submarine drama is a staple of um, of. Uh, Hollywood really, they always come back to it. So there'll be another. There's another one coming on soon called "Wait for It: Hunter Killer," uh, but it's not based on my book. Sadly, it's based. Oh, that's on a show. Yeah, they are great for drama. Even science fiction films draw on them. Star Trek Two being a good example. You reckon? All oh, right. Yeah, yeah. In certain parts, yeah, especially the ending. Right, I've got Star Trek Six. That's my favourite Star Trek. But, uh, oh, that's a great film. Yeah, it's a great film. 
It's a good movie about the end of the Cold War. Yeah, exactly. It? Brilliant script. I know, bizarre but true. And uh, I thought, bizarrely, I thought Interstellar was a great um, submarine, <laughs> sort of submarine drama as well. Do you know what? I've still not seen it. I was away. I was away working when it came out. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, there's a lot of common themes. You know, isolation. Um, you know, not having a window you can open. Whatever. You know, it's in there. Trust me. Yeah. Ian, thank you so much for today. Where can listeners find out about you and your work? Uh, well, I've I've got um, a website. It's uh, ianballantine dot uh, com, and uh, or they could just go on Amazon or on, yeah. I think the best one is ianballantine dot com. That's the best place to find out a little bit about the books. I mean, I, I've written numerous books, but you know, um, at the moment it's uh, submarines. So that's the topic we're talking about, and that's what I'm I'm submerged in right now. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening.